Callaway's new and improved Chrome Soft family of golf balls is better for everyone. From amateurs to major winners like John Rahm, Phil Mickelson and Annika Sorenstam, the new Chrome Soft delivers Callaway's highest quality, best performing and most consistent golf balls. Learn more at callawaygolf.com.au. Hello and welcome to episode 64 of The Thing About Golf, Golf Australia Magazine's ongoing quest to figure out what it is that hooks people on this wonderfully infuriating game. My name's Rod Murray and I'm joined today by my colleague John Huggan who has literally, as in in the last few minutes, got off a Zoom call with one of the most recognisable voices in the game. Huggy, welcome. Peter Costas, best known to many as a long-time commentator at CBS, but he's much, much more than that. How did you come to know him? Uh, well, it came to pass from, as, as, as most things do with me, uh, from my eight years in America uh, working for Golf Digest magazine. Peter was one of the, the top teachers uh, back then and still is. Um, I don't think he's got much connection with the magazine these days, but um, back then uh, he was on staff, if you like, and I was his ghost writer. I was the guy uh, charged with... Um, putting his thoughts onto paper and, and pictures and into the magazine. So um, I spent a lot of time with Peter over the years. Um, we haven't always agreed on things, especially the the, the distance issue, if you like. Um, I don't think he and I are ever going to see eye to eye on that. But um, but he's an incredibly interesting guy, very, very bright, um, highly intelligent, um, apart from on distance. But he'll laugh when he hears that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've always I've always enjoyed talking to him. We've never, you know, we've argued, but we've always argued, I, I hope, in the proper sense of the word, and we've never really fallen out for all the differences that we have. But I think people will really enjoy listening to him talk about things other than uh, what you hear on television, because so, that's that's just sound bites, and he's far, he, there's far more to Peter Costas than that. Yeah, it's not. Television's never a great medium for real communication, is it? Because it relies on everything. But it's a little bit like Twitter. It's a, it's the hundred and forty character version of communicating, yeah. isn't it? So there's, it's hard yeah. to say anything. But it's okay to disagree with people who are wrong, Huggy. Uh, Costas is clearly wrong, so it's fine to disagree. With yeah, I feel bad about that at all. <laughs> He'll laugh when he hears that too. He's he's very forthright and thoughtful, isn't he? Yeah, well, he's, he's, I forgot to ask on the podcast what, what he's de- He's got a degree in some kind of engineering uh, thing that not particularly related to golf, I don't think, but uh, so which tells you everything you need to know about what kind of brain he's got. Um, and he's taught some of, you know, some of the, he still teaches Paul Casey and he's taught, you know, he's worked with Nicholas and he grew up um, learning as he touches on in the podcast from the, the the great teachers and great American teachers of the past like Jim Flick and Bob Tosky and Davis Love Jr. Uh, Davis Love's uh, Davis Love 111 as I call him uh, his father uh, was with the magazine as well actually I actually did Davis Love Jr.'s very last story um, for the magazine sadly just before um, the terribly tragic uh, plane crash in which he lost his life but um, but Peter grew up in that environment uh, with all of those guys, and I'm sure um, every one of them would have some kind of influence on him. But uh, he's he's very much a man of his own ideas, 
as I hope will come across in the podcast, is uh, is well worth a listen. Yeah, indeed, indeed. What a different time in golf that was. Huggy, when you just mentioned some of those names and the idea of a golf digest school, the world's changed yeah. so much and you forget sometimes just how much if you're not careful. Final thing yeah. from me, Huggy, and I'd, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this. It was my, to my eternal joy that you got him to recite the Conic and Minolta BizHub Swing Vision camera during the course of the interview. (laughs) It's a strange thing that that has stuck so much. There's not anybody who doesn't remember the Conic and Minolta BizHub Swing Vision camera. Remarkable stuff, isn't it? Yeah, well, it always made me laugh because, you know, it's just part of the deal, isn't it, on television? Yeah. They, they were paying for, the, for their presence, if you like. and uh, But it obviously worked because you and I both remember it, yeah, and absolutely. I'm sure we're far from alone. So great great marketing by whoever came up with that idea. Indeed. I never bought the Konica Minolta BizHub, but if I was in the market for a BizHub Huggy, it would have been one of the first <laughs> ones I'd looked at, I assure you. Yeah, um, I'm not sure I even know what his hub is. <laughs> I think it's a photocopier of some sort. Uh, just before we right, leave that, okay. extraordinarily difficult task, speaking of television and its short-form nature, to at any given moment be asked to break down a particular swing where we've already seen the result and explain mm. why that's happened. That would be daunting, I would think, for most people. He never, he never balked at it, did he? No, well, that was his. You know, that's that's Peter's area of you know, expertise, and that's why he was there. I mean, he he's he's. I mean, if there's two or three guys in the world um, as good at that kind of thing as he is, the, the, that would be all. I mean, you could probably count them on the fingers of one hand. Um, and that's why he lasted as long as he did, I think, at CBS. I mean, he, I think he mentioned he did 30 straight Masters um, for CBS uh, television over there uh, until 2019, I think, was his last one. Uh, and it was. He's, uh, the, I think the, the listeners will enjoy his uh, take on the uh, the modern day uh, television coverage, if you like. Um, he's got plenty to say on that too. He does indeed. But what a joy, Huggy. I'm really enjoying working our way through your contact book. This one's been a delight. Thanks for joining us. Let's get in and have a listen to Peter Costas. Welcome to the latest edition of the, the Thing About Golf podcast. I'm joined this time around by uh, someone I've known uh, probably longer than uh, we care to yeah, remember the pair of us, but uh, Peter Costas, welcome to the show, and uh, thanks for doing this. Huggy, a pleasure to see you and talk to you again, and yes, we've known each other longer than either one of us cares to admit. Yes, indeed. Um, I always start these things, Peter, with the same question. Um, what was or is the thing about golf for you? Boy, that's 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 a great question to start these these podcasts with, and... and uh, it's kind of like asking the question, if you could only play one golf course for the rest of your life, what mm-hmm. would it be? And um, in my case, it would be St. Andrews simply and solely because um, it's never the same two rounds in a row. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you play in the morning and go out the same day and the same afternoon with the same pins, or you play it the next day with different pin locations, uh, in different wind directions. St. Andrews never has ever played the same for me two rounds in a row. And I've enjoyed the, uh, the challenge of that. And that, that kind of is why I like golf is because it's never the same, you know, day in and day out. It, it's, it's constantly, it's constantly changing. Um, it tests all of your skills, your, your physical skills, your mental skills, your emotional skills, and none of those stay the same day to day. And, and so, um, you know, you, you can, you feel like you master it one day 
And then you come back the next day and it makes you a slave to it. Yeah. yeah. You know, so I love the uniqueness of the game of golf in that uh, every shot is unique. Every day is unique. Yeah. Um, we're going to drag you right back to the beginning, if I can. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I, you, you're from Maine. I think you're the, you and Stephen King are the only two people I've heard of who come from Maine. <laughs> um, apart from Hawkeye Pierce and Mash, that's the other one. But yeah. um, golf in Maine, I mean, I'm sure it's a, you know, it's a very short season. I mean, how did you arrive at golf? I mean, very, very long winters in Maine. You know, well, they they weren't quite as long as you might think in the portion of Maine where I lived. But the 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 initial um, intrigue in golf to me was I played team sports, um, mostly football, and I found myself um, unable to be happy if the team won and I played poorly hmm. and unable to be sad if I played well and the team lost, yeah. there was a, there was a contradiction always going on for me there. And so I learned early on that a, an individual sport was probably better suited to my personality. If I played poorly, fine, I'll deal with it. If I played well, fine, I'll accept it and, and enjoy it. And, and so that started me to play in golf in high school and then after an injury forced me um, out of any other sports in college, um, I, I stayed on the golf team in order to maintain my scholarship because I needed the money. And right. that's, that was the beginning of it for me. Yeah. I mean, um, I know, I mean, I know you're obviously you were a pretty good player in your time. I mean, how, how good were you and how close were you to, to tour level? If you like, if you give tour level 10 out of 10, where were you? Probably a seven or eight. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it, it was such a different time back then. And there was no all exempt tour. There was no, you know, uh, Cone Ferry tour. There was no challenge tour. There was no means of getting out there other than Q school. And, and by the time I was good enough to properly expect that I might be able to qualify for the tour, I was in my late twenties, mm. maybe close to 30. And back then, your your PGA Tour career was over with at thirty nine or forty. Yeah. Um, at least there was no there was no Champions Tour, no Senior Tour, um, and so I, I I had a long hard talk with myself. But I want to try and 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 pursue something that I might be able to do for eight ten years and and probably not at the at the top level. Um, or do I want to really immerse myself in the teaching world that I can do for the rest of my life and and perhaps become really good at it. And mm -hmm. so that's where that's where I parted ways with a hundred percent dedication to playing professionally and, and went on the on the path of, of teaching professionally. That said, all of my playing experiences have been invaluable to my teaching abilities. For example um, for example I, I'm, I'm still of the I'm still of the opinion that if if you can't play the game reasonably well, then you can't teach the game reasonably well. Because there are so many subtleties in the art of teaching that come from understanding the player's perspective. Um, it's, it, and today, I'm somewhat discouraged. This is I'm, now I'm going off on a on a tangent. I'm somewhat discouraged that the number of young teachers coming out there who stand behind their player and looking down at their iPad or their iPhone mm. for the numbers from the launch monitor and never even looking up and looking at the damn golf ball, yeah. you know? Um, and, and besides I don't teach people, um, 
the golf swing. I teach them how to play golf, yeah. which is an art form unto itself, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of with you. And I mean, I, you know, it's a kind of cliched statement almost now, but to me, there's there's too much science and not enough art. It's certainly at the top level. I, th- I think I think there's room for both. You know, the science of the swing and the art of playing have to be become homogenized, and and they have to become homogenized around what the player brings to the party, not what the teacher wants at the party. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that in order for there to be a long-term relationship between teacher and player, the teacher has to constantly be adapting to the player's needs. Yeah. I mean, I was always, you know, back in my Golf Digest days, I was always very impressed by how much different the the really good teachers, yourself and David Ledbetter and Hank Caney, those guys, there was a separation between your, that group and the next group down. You know, there, there was a bunch of guys, you know, working for the Golf Digest schools, for example, who were always moaning to me about how they couldn't get in the magazine. I said, well, you come up with better ideas than Peter Costas, David Ledbetter and Hank Caney, you're in the magazine. But as I say, I used to watch you guys teach and there was always, my thinking would go, well, I could see there was a mistake there. And my thinking would go, there's the mistake. But you're already thinking about three steps down the road. Or, or typically, it seemed to me, there's the mistake. Here's what we need to do. And there's three steps to get into where you wanted them to be. Is that fair? That That's that's part and partial to, to my um, concept of how to teach. Mm. Um, you know, anybody can can pretty much tell somebody else is, oh, you're coming over the top. You're swinging Mm -hmm. outside in over the top. And they say, okay, fine. Why? Um, Are you aiming too far right? Is the ball too far forward? Is your grip too weak? Is it a little bit of all three? And and so I always ask myself the question, why, 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 until I got back to what I determined to be the root cause. And if I could get to work on the root cause, I could sometimes fix five or six things in the golf swing by working on one thing Hmm. as opposed to working on five or six different things to get to the same, you know, conclusion. Mm -hmm. And and I think sometimes, you know, that's why launch monitors tell you what happened, but it doesn't tell you why Hmm. it happened. And, And if you don't know the why, then you can't, in my opinion, be, um, a top flight teacher who, who, very simply and very quickly can can get a point across to a student, whether it's a beginner or a 10 handicapper or a tour player for that matter. Yeah. That brings up the question, is it is it easier for you to teach a, a punter than a pro? I mean, on the face of it, you would think, well, you look at the punters and the, the obvious, the mistakes are obvious. So that part of it must be kind of easier. After that, what switches the more difficult? <laughs> well, they, they both bring their own unique... Uh, challenges, shall we say. Um, uh, I, in fact, I just told my son this this morning, we were out teaching and he was, I was working with a student next to him and, and uh, I, I brought out my, my famous line that I use all the time with, you know, if you want to be a successful teacher of tour players, you have to learn the art of making them think that they thought of it. Because <laughs> um, yeah. only if they thought of it, will they really give 100% effort to, to yeah. remedying the problem, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and the punter, as you call it, they pretty much respect your opinion. So you can just tell them what to do. Mm-hmm. Now, the differences are, are you know, the, the physical ability to, to fall through and, 
and how much uh, do you give them at one sitting, right? You, you yeah. can't, you can't, you can't give the average golfer too much. You, you have to success breeds success. Uh, success breeds motivation, which then creates more impetus to practice, which will then bring you more success. So you, I always want to under teach and, and over deliver with the average golfer so that they're motivated to get out, spend an extra half an hour that they might otherwise not have working on their game and then, you know, get ready for the next lesson or their next round of golf or whatever. Tour players will generally put in the work Mm, yeah, because they realize it's their profession, right? But convincing them that this is what they have to do, or that's what they have to do. That's, that's the unique challenge with, with tour players, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's an ego thing, isn't it really? So, yeah, that's that's part of the equation. Yeah, and yeah. It, it's part of the reason why it's part of the reason why some players, um, you know, hop around from teacher to teacher, uh, and other players stay with one, perhaps even too long. Hmm. Um, but they think that that, that their ego doesn't let them see the, what's really happening, right. and, and so as a consequence, they have a, a clouded image of what's going on, and and progress is is faint. Yeah. Well, what about the punters? I'm, I'm interested in the, are, are they still making the same mistakes now as they made, you know, when you kicked off your career? Absolutely. Yeah. They're still, Absolutely. still slicing. Still, yeah. Well, they're, they're still slicing. They, the only difference um, with them now is they're making the same mistakes with even more out of control effort because of the emphasis being placed professionally on, you know, working out, Getting club head speed, um, hitting the ball farther and farther, um, all the all of the uh, what I call the billy ball uh, statistics that are involved in professional golf these days. The amateurs pick up on that, right? And so yeah, they go out and they start swinging from their rear end uh, way out of control, even faster than they did back in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, but the mistakes are still the same: lousy grip, lousy fundamentals. They, they ne- never learned how to control the club face. They never learned how to make the ball go from point A to point B. I mean, there's a lot to be said, Huggy, for the way you and I learned how to play the game. I had a shag bag, right? Mm, yeah. And I, it took me forever to get 50 balls that were mm-hmm. that were reasonable to practice with. And so rule number one was don't lose one, mm-hmm. right? So wherever yeah. you put the shag bag for whatever club, you did everything in your power to get the ball as close to that bag as possible. Yeah. And then um, not only that, but then you, you wouldn't just go pick them up and come back and hit them again. You, you took your wedge and you chipped them to the, to the shag bag. So yeah. you got 50% short game practice with 50% full swing practice. Yeah. That's, right? e- that's exactly and, what I did. You're right. Yeah. And, and so you 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 learn the art of playing the game, controlling the golf ball, chipping, not so much putting maybe, but um, because we were forced to use shag bags, right? And and now we got these beautiful practice areas, driving ranges, or as the masters likes to call them, tournament pra- tournament practice facility. Which <laughs> yeah yeah, we'll get to another that whole story. We'll, we'll get to that in a bit. Don't worry. <laughs> But, but, you know, so, so we innately learned how to play the game when we were practicing the game, given the practicing conditions that we had. That's a lost art form, right? Is it a losing battle, though? I mean, I, I make a joke, and I've maybe done it on here before, but I was at Golf Digest for eight years, and when I arrived to sort of 
run the instruction department, if you like, and call it that way. The average handicap of the average reader was 17.8. And eight years later, when I left, and after we'd cured the slice and given them more distance and gotten them up and down every time and made them putt better and better bunker players, the average was still 17.8, eight years later. Um, Either I wasn't doing a very good job or none of us were. I mean, is it it a losing battle? Is is it just an eternal battle? Put it that way. It's the eternal battle. And that's and yeah. that goes back to your original question about golf, right? It's a battle every single day that you go out. And and look, uh, I, I like to collect quotes. And and one of my most favorite quotes is that information is not knowledge and knowledge is not wisdom. Hmm. Wisdom can only be acquired with experience. And we can make the student more knowledgeable, right? We can, we can give them the tools to, to get rid of their slice, as it were. But that's not going to make them a wise golfer. Mm. Only experience can do that. And they have to practice. They have to play. And I think that, that the biggest failure in that equation is the, our inability, because we had them for a week at a golf school or whatever, to follow up and see what they did after they left. Yeah. Right? They were hitting the ball better. And they were probably effectively had gone from a 17.8 to a, let's say a 12 at the end of the school, because mm. they were clearly hitting the ball better. Yeah. But if they slowly regressed back into their old habits, um, it, it's kind of like somebody who's, who's 50 pounds overweight and goes to a health club thing for a week. And it, you're not going to lose all 50 pounds in the week, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you're going to learn the tools of eat, eating healthy, exercising properly. You'll lose a few pounds. But if you keep on with the program, you'll eventually drop those 50 pounds. I find that the amateur gives up on the program, just like they give up on their diets, yeah. and they eventually gain that weight back and then some, right? So that, that's, that to me, is the, it's not the teacher's problem per se, um, but it is part of the problem. Yeah. I want to take you back to something you said earlier there, your, your decision to head into teaching. An, an easy decision, if you like, but very difficult to make it work. I mean, what was your route to where you are today through the teaching world? Well, I was, you know, it, it's, <laughs> it, it's, it, most things in life happen out of left field, if you will. They, they just, an opportunity presents itself. You never knew it was going to happen. And are you prepared for it? Mm. Um, I was down in, in South Florida, in Delray Beach, Florida. Um, trying to play some mini tour events, practicing. Um, I, I took a job as an assistant pro uh, at a place at the time. It's now been renamed, but at the time it was called the Hamlet. And I, I used that to augment some income. Hmm. And luckily for me, um, a little while after I was there, they hired Jim Flick to be the director of instruction. Right. And so I met Jim and you know, I was given lessons and Jim saw and we became friends. And obviously that was my pathway to Bob Toski and Golf Digest. And so I was very fortunate back then uh, to have been uh, introduced to both of those guys. Um, that doesn't happen very often, but, you know, I took advantage of the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, and what did you learn from them? And at least initially, what, what were the first things that you noticed that they did that you didn't do at that point? Um, it wasn't what they did and I didn't do. I, what I noticed was they were both highly successful, both 
basically trying to teach the same thing, but in completely different ways, mm. completely different ways. Bob was so much more expressive and, yes. and outgoing and <laughs> right. I mean, he would get in your face and yeah. whatever, and, and he would succeed with some students uh, and not with others who were mm -hmm. intimidated by him. Yeah. And Jim was, was a little bit more analytical and easygoing and whatever. And he appealed to another group of students and some others didn't like that. And so I learned from them that if I want to be a really, really good teacher, I got to figure out a way to appeal to all of my students as best as I can, hmm. which means communicating to them um, in a way that they understand, they appreciate, and they can accept. Yeah. I remember you you tell me years ago that there, there are different, they always struck with me, they stuck with me there. There's different kinds of learners. Yeah. And you, and you have yep. to teach them all in different ways. I mean, but how quickly do you determine which category, <coughs> you know, punter A falls into and how... And, yeah. How well, many shots does it I, I'll take? Give you, I'll give you a couple. Uh, I'll give you a couple examples. We'll go to the two most, um, the two largest forms of learners in, in golf: kinesthetic and visual. Mm -hmm. All right, those are those are through feel and through sight. Right, and so when I'm when I'm talking to my student, I'll say, "How's it going?" And 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 he'll say. Um, you know, I feel like a club's getting behind me. It's, I can't get the club back in front of me. It's, it feels like I'm going from under to over. Well, he has immediately told me in the first sentence that, that he's a kinesthetic mm. aware player. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Ask the same question to a visual person and he'll say, well, I looked at my swing last week and my shaft is too vertical on the way down. And Bingo. He's a visual player. Yeah. And so you, you demonstrate so they can see you with the visual player. You demonstrate by going hands-on so the other the, the kinesthetic player can feel it, right? And so you have to then there's then there's verbal. Uh there's people who are cognitive learners. Yeah. That, uh if you will, that they would read golf digest, uh, that something would click. Oh, I understand that, mm -hmm. right? So if you ask that that cognitive student, you know, how's things going? So I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand why I can't I can't hit this shot every time. Well, bingo, they've, they just told you that they're a cognitive learner. Yeah. So that, that's a person who needs to be convinced and understand before they can execute. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't sound like it takes you very long to figure it out. It doesn't now. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> it did yeah. in the beginning. Yeah. Um, uh, and I would get really angry with myself when I misdiagnosed a student. And, and remember, and, and one of the things that was really, in hindsight, crucially, crucial important to my development as a teacher as you remember we had we had 36 students and four instructors in the golf digest school yeah. for five days generally yeah and each one of us would be assigned an area of the game but so we would have we would have nine students for an hour and a half that's 90 minutes yeah you you whack off you whack off 10 minutes for either demonstrations or whatever mm -hmm. uh you got 80 minutes so now you got you got eight minutes per student seven minutes per student yeah. in that seven minute time frame you have to analyze their what, what they're doing you have to give them something that works and you have to make them successful at it mm. and so that time crunch cut through all the bullshit for me yeah i i, I couldn't I, I couldn't stand around very long mm. right that's and good then you're doing 36 less 36 lessons a day five days a week is what you're giving mm -hmm. Right. And, and so 
that that was crucial to my development to get quicker, better, faster, and and um, in my opinion, that led to my ability to do what I did on television. Hmm. Yeah, S- simply and solely because I could look at a swing and analyze it and and then describe it. Yeah, I, I must. How this has always kind of intrigued me. Um, there's there's a there's a lot of really good teachers out there, and that we the world basically has never heard of. How important is it for somebody like you, or was it for you to to teach higher profile players to help your profile, and or, or was that vital, or did it matter? Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Um, would, would you would you have gotten to where you are today without teaching Paul Casey or whoever? Probably not, because yeah. because the perception is um, you're not a good teacher until you're teaching good players. Yeah. That, now, that I mean. perception is 100% wrong, in my mm. opinion. Yeah. Right? But that's what it is. It, I always found it really um, um, intriguing to me that whoever was teaching Tiger at the time mm. automatically became Golf Digest number one instructor. <laughs> In the in the top fifty, yeah, yeah. That's I go true. really, really. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 same with Golf Magazine. It's not not to pick on one or the other, but the the more ho- high profile the player, the more high profile the coach became. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't think it's necessarily um, a correct equation, if you will. Mm-hmm. I think there's been some teachers who've taught high profile players who are absolutely, in my opinion, pitiful mm-hmm. instructors. But for whatever reason, they had a they had a camaraderie with the player, and they they worked with them for a while. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's it's. I find the the teaching lists, whatever they are, are more popularity contests and mm, yeah. promotional contests for the magazines than they are reflection of whether or not uh, a person can teach. There's there's thousands of really great instructors out there across the world who people have never ever heard of. Yeah. Yeah. Only because of of not having worked with a a high profile player or had an affiliation with golf or golf digest. Mm-hmm. How is there more pressure teaching a high profile player? I mean, the world is watching for a start. I never. Well, th- there's obviously more pressure if you're if you're screwing with somebody's income, mm. right? I mean, yeah, you're responsible. Not you're trying to have them win more tournaments, finish higher in tournaments, make more money, whatever. Um, and you certainly don't want to ruin them and, and make them worse. That, that, that would be catastrophic to their career. So there is that pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, I never really felt that though, when I was teaching for good or for bad. And um, even though I early on in my career, especially I did some things that I would have done differently. Uh, I never thought they were wrong at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Without naming names, I mean, uh, what sort of mistakes did you make? And I mean, we all learn more from mistakes, I think, than success. Sometimes, um, are there I mean, every? I'm sure. I think every teacher I've talked to, including you, has had pupils that where it hasn't clicked. I mean, <coughs> yeah. Here's 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 my general mistake early on, and it's become my uh, my bible, if you will. Ever since, uh, I firmly believe that by the time, let's just say a, a generic tour player is 15 years old, mm-hmm. um, they've played a lot of junior golf, whatever, their golf DNA is cast. It's done and dusted. Yeah. 
wh- whatever that may be. Um, and, and so I tried to change a golfer's DNA sometimes in the beginning of my career before I realized that that's not the right thing to do. Hmm. What you can do is example, and I'll use tiger as an example. Yeah. Tiger always swung his arms as fast as he could and his body reacted to the arm swing, right? Okay. He was always uh, a little lifted and across the line and a little bit shut with his club face at the top. So in 2000, 2001, when he was on top of the world, his, his, he was a little bit across the line, a little bit closed. Every person who's across the line in the history of golf has wanted to be laid off. Yeah. Every laid off player wanted to be across the line. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So if you take a, a, a cross the line player and try to get them laid off, you're screwing with their DNA. And, and so Tiger eventually worked on being less across the line, got to on the line and mm-hmm. played some really great golf, but then crossed over to the dark side yeah. and got laid off. Right. And then not only that happened, but then he, he progressed in his pursuit of, of getting better. Instead of his body reacting to his swing, he started getting violent with his body. Instead of swinging his body, he was bodying his swing. Yeah. So he got another step removed from his DNA, right? And, and now the back fusion and obviously the subsequent uh, car crash and whatever, he's back to having to swing his arms again. So he's, found, he's refound his 15-year-old uh, fifteen year old DNA. Uh, and I think he's swinging the club better, not be, notwithstanding the bad right foot. So I, I try to get a few players to change their DNA before I understood that that shouldn't be done. Right. Speaking, speaking about Tiger, I mean, this is maybe an unanswerable question. I don't know. We'll see. Um, had he just stuck with what he had to begin with, would he have won more, even more than he has? That's so hard to say. Yeah. Um, Tiger's personality, he had, he had to keep trying to improve. The old cliche, if you're not getting better, you're getting worse because mm. staying the same is getting worse. Yeah. Um, uh, he, he bought into that a thousand percent. Now, he needed to work on getting better, perhaps differently than he did. Mm. Um, and, and he needed to work out in a way that would, would not leave him susceptible to injury. Right. And so that's, that's the, uh, that's the issue with Tiger is that the pursuit of trying to get, get better was really important for him. I think he just went about it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Do you think, um, <clears throat> well, this is the ultimate question. Everybody goes back and forth on this and it depends on your criteria. Uh, criteria I always think is, um, cause I think that the bet, the best golf we've ever seen has been played by Tiger Woods, but, I still kind of lean towards Jack Nicholas as maybe the best player, which is two slightly different things. I mean, wh- where do you stand on that? Um, I, I still think Jack, because of his record, mm-hmm. uh, was probably the best that I've seen. I, I've been really fortunate. I mean, you, uh, people ask about, do I miss being on television or whatever? I go, yeah, kind of sometimes, but not really. Mm. I I got there. I was there for the golden era, what I call the golden era of televised golf. I mean, I, I got to watch 
um, the end of, of well, a lot of Jack Nicklaus's career, yeah. you know, and then all the way through Tiger's career. Um, and they were different golfers. Um, their, their pursuit of their craft was different. Um, but they both changed the game tremendously. Uh, people don't think that Jack changed the game, but he did. He did a lot. He, he brought power into the game at a level uh, previously un, unseen, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. He, was, he was hitting his, his 43-inch persimmon driver 340 at times. Yeah. Um, and, and, and to that end, I mean, every great golfer has probably separated himself from the field with the driver. Yeah. Um, but Tiger did it, and, and Tiger changed the game as well. Maybe in, in, because of technology and because of um, information sp- uh, spreading across the world in a nanosecond, uh, he probably changed the game more than Jack did mm-hmm. uh, be- because people saw Tiger hitting a two iron that went seven iron high and three wood far. Yeah. Right. And other guys go, shit, I can't do that. Yeah. Um, and so what happens? They invent a hybrid. Yeah. No, so, so a, a club was born where other m- mere mortals could, could hit, you know, seven iron high three woods. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, they the, couldn't do it with a damn two iron. Yeah. The, the great long iron players have been screwed by the arrival of the hybrid. There's no doubt about that, you know. Which is another interesting proposition because I've found through the years that you're either a great long iron player or you're a great fairway wood hybrid player, but there's never been anyone, in my opinion, who's been equally good at both. Because? Swing's different. Different angle of attack, um, different components in the swing. Jack Jack was never a good three-wood player. I mean, he, he played away from it sometimes. Right, okay. But he was a tremendous one and two iron player mm-hmm. yeah so w- would you agree with my assessment then that tiger's best is the best we've seen boy i don't know i don't know it's 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 the best that a lot of people have seen because of television being so prolific during his career yeah. okay i'm gonna go there mm-hmm. but jack was unbelievable you know oh, and i got a chance to, to work with and play with sam sneed mm. and 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 he was unbelievable but nobody ever saw it that was before television right yeah 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 so yeah. so tiger gets gets more worldwide notoriety for how good he was than than either nicholas or sneed or certainly hogan right mm-hmm. yeah um, i sometimes make the case just with a slightly tongue-in-cheek that um sam sneed might be the the greatest golfer of all that we've seen so far because he was great longer than anybody else has been great you know he was competitive at the highest level in his 60s no, no one else has done that yet. No, no. I, and in my opinion, and I spent, um, I was fortunate through the golf digest schools and living in South Florida to spend a whole bunch of time with him. Mm-hmm. And, and he was, uh, extremely knowledgeable. I mean, extremely knowledgeable about the game of golf, about the golf swing and whatever. Now he could not verbalize it very well. Right. Um, but but he would always and he would never tell he would never ever answer any one of my questions, ever. Really. But but he would point he would point me in the right direction, and if I did what he said, I would figure out the answer. Did you have any contact with so, Hogan? Very little. I was I was on the Hogan uh, staff in like seventy four, seventy five, or mm-hmm. whatever, and and went out to Fort Worth 
um, to get fitted for clubs and, and uh, met him there. And Joe Lee, uh, who lived in, in Delray Beach, Florida, the architect, mm-hmm. um, was, the, was the architect that Ben Hogan chose to design the trophy club in, in uh, Fort Worth. That was right. Hogan's only golf club that he designed, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and Joe and I were really good friends because he designed the Hamlet. And so I went out there with Joe one time and went around the golf course with, with Joe and, and Ben Hogan. And that was, that was insightful as well. Well, tell me more. Don't don't stop there. Well, I mean, one of the things was uh, w- when they were designing, uh, Hogan insisted that if the pin was located, um, let's say, right front on a particular green, that only the left side of the fairway could you see the bottom of the flagstick. Right. Okay. If you're on the right side of the fairway, you couldn't see the bottom of the flagstick. Right. And so he thought that. Everybody should ought to be able to see the bottom of the flagstick at all times, but you should be you should be forced to play the game the hole correctly in order to be, to be able to do that. Yeah, right. There would be some blind shots, uh, which he hated if you put it on the wrong side of the fairway, but completely open shots if you yeah. hit it down the left side of the fairway. It sounds right? a bit sounds a bit like an so that, that, uh in, in some respects, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's yeah. all all about the angles there. You can put the ball anywhere you want and still play. Yes, but um, if you want to, if you want to visually be able to see where you're going to play to, um, you, you better be over there and not over here. Callaway's new Rogue ST drivers represent a breakthrough in driver performance. The Rogue ST drivers are Callaway's fastest, most stable drivers ever. Callaway's industry-leading innovations, including their tungsten speed cartridge, jailbreak speed frame, and an AI-designed flash face, are engineered for maximum speed with exceptional levels of forgiveness. Think speed, go Rogue with Callaway, the kings of distance. To find out which Rogue ST driver is right for you, visit callawaygolf.com.au. Changing the subject completely, um, here's the, here's the, <laughs> the thing that uh, everybody's talking about at the moment, other than the, the Masters, which we'll get to in a minute, um, and your association, long association with the, with the tournament. Um, Saudi Arabia, Phil Mickelson, all the rest of it. Um, what are we supposed to make of all this? And what have you made? I'm, I'm interested in your reaction to the PGA Tour's reaction to this which I don't think is that to me is the one area of this that hasn't really been subjected to the same kind of scrutiny as maybe it should have been. Yeah. I, I, I'm of, uh, I'm of two minds here. A huggy. It's uh, I hate selective outrage mm. and I, I, I hate selective hypocrisy. I, I really do. Um, like for example, this year uh, when Gary player hit his tee shot, uh, opening up the, the Masters, yeah. and he was taken to task for wearing the Golf Saudi logo on his on his collar, right? Yeah, yeah. But he wore it there last year, and nobody said a word. Mm-hmm. Not one person said one word about that logo, right? Yeah. So all of a sudden, it was okay last year to wear that logo and not okay this year? Come on, give me a break. Yeah. It's either okay or it's not okay. Um, and, and so with respect to the, to the Saudi thing, um, look – China has done the same thing. They've, they've tried to use sports to, to whitewash some of their atrocities that they're mm-hmm. doing. Clearly, that's what Saudi Arabia is doing. Um, and, and 
how can they be acceptable in one country and unacceptable in another? I mean, is, is one form of, of uh, suppression and, and, and authoritarianism okay and another not okay? Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't see that way. I think, I think the people got upset because someone was challenging the status quo of the PGA Tour. Mm-hmm. And, and um, they were looking for a way to respond to that. And one of the ways was um, to blame the Saudi government for all of their atrocities, of, of which they're all well documented. And obviously, one of those was a journalist. So yeah. journalists are going to take up the, the, the mantle of, of this crusade. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I tweeted out one time, I said, I really want to know, is the outrage over the this new tour because it's challenging the PGA Tour or because it's backed by Saudi money? Would it be okay if if a group from Switzerland, and I pick Switzerland only because it's it's the identity yeah. of a neutral con- country, yeah. right? Yeah. Said, they're, they're always if, neutral, yeah. So. so I said, if all the money came from Switzerland, would this new tour be okay? Yeah. And I got ripped up one side and down the other. Yeah, right? that's a that's a really interesting question, though. I mean, the the well, that's the, what I wanted to ask. Yeah, I mean, the the, the, the PGA Tour reaction I mean, to me is is fascinating in that they got so defensive so early. I mean, if they were if they were so sure of the quality of their product, it should have been okay. Bring it on. Let's see what you've got. Let's see if you can beat us. But there was none of that. Correct. It was it was oh well we're no, we're going to get really defensive here. We're going to ban people for if they make the jump or whatever, you know, that to me, that didn't show a lot of confidence in their own product. Well, um, you know, when I, toward the end of my CBS career, I got reprimanded several times by the PGA tour for um, <laughs> taking a new, a first time winner and, and saying, congratulations, you've, you've, you've now qualified for the masters. Yeah. Um, how do you feel? Instead of saying, well, you've won 500 FedEx cup points. <laughs> they got, they got yeah. pissed off at me for that. Right. Yeah. And, and so then I, then, then you, it's all about the FedEx cup points until it's not until it's about the money, like at the players championship. Yeah. Um, you, you can't, you know, defend your product, make your product better, make your product so damn good that nobody would want to leave. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but, but don't stifle, um, competitiveness by smearing people right i mm-hmm. i don't know if if phil has been suspended or not i have no idea um my suspicions are my internal beliefs of which i have no knowledge is that he has been suspended mm-hmm. i do know he has other issues that he's dealing with yeah um and maybe he's just taking a personal leave i have no idea i, mm-hmm. I really don't but you know the 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 flack that he took for doing what he did and saying what he said, I don't think it was sufficient, sufficiently thought about before they did it. Well, it, it only really kicked off when the you know his comments made to Alan Shipnuck, you know, last November came on. I mean, the the interview he did with me in in Saudi Arabia was was highly critical of the the PGA Tour, and, and perhaps the best you could say it was unfortunately worded in places. But other than that. Um, there was some legitimate stuff in there. I thought a lot in the, the PGA Tour for me, a lot of weeks is a pretty tired product these days. There's a lot of tournaments where, I mean, I'm a golf addict like yourself and, and I'm interested, but I'm not watching. I, it, it doesn't incite, excite me and, and I don't pay much attention other than to see who won afterwards. 
that that isn't healthy for them. I don't. Well, think. I mean, no, it's not. And 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 I, I'll tell you, I I watched a, a large chunk of the Masters. I would have watched more mm. had not Paul had to withdraw with back spasms. Yeah, uh, only to watch him play. Um, but I don't watch week to week anymore. It's unwatchable for me. Yeah, it's the the commentary, the everything is just it's just it's just uh, state run television as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. and, and so I, I don't like it. Um, that said, uh, the the PGA Tour is stuck in its ways, in my opinion. That they need to really get moving. I mean, look, Phil, Phil is Phil. We know him. Some of us love him, understand his his weaknesses and his flaws. When at Glen Eagles, when he erupted after the Ryder Cup, yeah, I, I was there. I listened to that. Yeah, everybody took him to task. Shouldn't have done it. it. Was the wrong time and place. Yeah, blah 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 blah. But what happened? He was right. Now he was wrong, perhaps in the way he went about it. Yeah, maybe his emotions got over, got got control over him. But he was right that the players needed to be better vested from America if they wanted to perform better. The, the European players are far more vested in the process uh, for a multitude of reasons than the Americans were. Yeah, And so the Americans come out and, and things change. Players have more input, blah, blah, blah. Americans started playing better until this past year, right? So, so he was wrong in the way he did it, but right in what he wanted to have happen. Yeah, he, he could have achieved all of it that you just said without, you know, putting Tom Watson through that in a public way that he did. I mean, that, that way, he kind of lost me on that to be fair. Uh, but you're right. I mean, no, he, I, he, I, I understand lo- that, but it's the same thing here. You know, it, when he said, you know, I, I know they're scary MFers, yeah. uh, but mm-hmm. this is, this is a once in a lifetime chance to change the PGA tour. Mm-hmm. Probably shouldn't have said that. No. And he mm-hmm. probably definitely shouldn't have said it on the record. No. Well, um, uh, what, what do you think and, of that? And I mean, there's some confusion about that too. Yeah, right? well, I, here's, but, there's three things I believe about that, you know, exchange between Alan Shipnock and, and Phil. I, I do believe Alan, obviously, when Alan says that Phil never said out loud, this is off the record. But I believe that Phil thought he was off the record. And I have to believe that Alan kind of knew that Phil thought that. You know, it's a grey area, uh, and and Alan did nothing wrong technically, but it, it's a. It, had it been me, I'd have been saying, you know, are you sure about this, and and you know that kind of thing, because uh, Alan professionally has burned a, a bridge, certainly with Phil and maybe with other players as well. You know, um, that's what he's going to have to live he's with. He's burned going lots forward. of bridges. Yeah, with that one he's thing. Yeah. Burned. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I will take you back to 1996 Masters, Greg Norman. Saturday evening, I'm walking back to the TV compound from the 10th hole, and uh, he has a six-shot lead, right? Mm, yeah. And as I'm walking back by the par three, going to the TV compound, um, oh, I forget his name now. Golf Channel had one reporter there. It was their first year of covering the Masters, and, and they had one guy there, um, and he was getting ready to do a stand-up uh, back to Orlando. Right. And so he stopped me and we're just having a chat and, and he says, well, it looks like Sharky's going to win his first green jacket. Hmm. And, you know, I never even thought about on the record, off the record. Right. Yeah. I just assumed it was a private conversation between the two of us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I said, well, you know, I'm not so certain about this. Um, Butch changed his grip on Tuesday, made it stronger. 
He played great on Thursday. The grip got weaker on Friday. He didn't play as well. He got weaker again today. And, and but for a great short game, he could have shot 78 today. So his, his lead has gone from two to four to six. And people think he's playing better each day, but he's actually playing worse. Right. So if he doesn't get a handle on that tomorrow, he might be in for a long day. Yeah. That's exactly what I said, right? Hmm. Sunday morning, I walk in the TV compound, Trichinian calls me up <laughs> and he goes, did you tell the whole world Norman was going to choke? And I go, what? And I go, no, I didn't. Yeah. He goes, well, he just hung up the phone and he wants to put his hands around your throat. <laughs> and I go, I don't understand, Frank. He goes, well, you, you said something. And then it dawned on me, then it clicked. Yeah. The Golf Channel had bought time on the local CBS affiliate in Augusta because they had no viewers, yeah. right? And so they went on the air. They asked the reporter, what's the mood in Augusta? And he said, everybody thinks Greg's going to win his first green jacket, except, interestingly enough, moments ago, I talked to CBS's <laughs> Peter Costas, and then he told, he told my deal. Well, yeah. Greg saw it on, yeah. on Saturday night. Of course, yeah. There's, there's a case where I assumed it was off the record. It was yeah. a rookie mistake, yeah. which I never made subsequently to that. Yeah. And he thought it was too good to not use it, even though he thought it was probably off the record. Yeah. And that's identical to what I think happened with Phil. I think you're 100% correct. Yeah. yeah that, think- said, that said, uh, I'm not sure Alan had to divulge it when he did. I think yeah. it was an opportunist at that. Yeah, point. I think uh, Alan, you know, he's obviously perfectly within his rights to do so, but uh, I can say that I would not have done what he did. Uh, I must admit, and your and your mistake, as you just acknowledged, was not really knowing who you were talking to. Who yeah, it was did. Brian Hammonds, by the way. The name just go. came back to me. There you um, go. Yeah. But but um, you know, it was it was uh, yeah. I thought we were just talking, you know, shooting the bull yeah. uh, until he went on the air. Mm-hmm. And that that's never happened to me since because I, I learned my lesson. Well, you you've seen it from the other side a bit. I mean, I've you know over the years I've talked to you off and on, and, and there's been times when Tiger wasn't too keen to be interviewed by you after the round. Am I right in saying that? And so you've seen it from the the kind of journalistic side as well. You know, I I used to be upset about the whole thing when Tiger, you know, gave me what we call over here the Heisman, the stiff arm. Mm-hmm. And now I realize, now I wear it as a badge of honor that I am arguably one of the only people in the world to ever be able to get under his skin. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I've said this to you before, I think, Kim, that you can't do the, the journalist job properly without pissing people off, at least some of the time. And and I, I believe, Peter, that even occasionally I've pissed you off now and again. I mean, you know, let's face it, it happens. It does, you know, and and you know, we 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 kiss and make up, not literally, but yeah. Um, uh, and and you know, with, with Tiger, it I never ever felt like at any point in, I think the sixteen or seventeen years that I did the, the swing vision swing analyses of players on on tour, I never was or attempted to be critical of the player. Mm-hmm. Right. But if Tiger on the 16th hole uh, in Akron, Ohio, hits the ball 50 yards to the right of the fairway and Trichinian says to me, all right, look at the swing. Tell me what he did wrong. Mm. What am I going to say? Oh, that was a really good swing. He just yeah. aimed it over there. Yeah. Or, you know, I, I, I have to explain why the ball went 50 yards right. That's not being critical of the player. That's analyzing what he just did. Mm-hmm. And eventually, Tiger got upset with that, 
And he had his agent, Mark Steinberg, tell Lance Barrow, who was then the producer, that he didn't want me following Tiger anymore. Yeah. And and Lance didn't have the the wherewithal mentally to stand up to that and put me with him as he should have. Yeah. He just said, You're not going to cover Tiger. Yeah, Tiger was pretty powerful. Tiger was the biggest thing in the golf. Yeah, exactly. Now, what was the name of that thing, that machine that you had to rattle off before every swing sequence? That's one of the great losses to television golf, is that <laughs> two or three seconds of well, whatever it, it was. was it, it, it was, it, it started off the, the Konica Minolta BizHub swing vision camera. There you go. And then eventually, then they, then eventually they dropped the BizHub, so it became the Konica Minolta swing vision camera. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of my favorite moments of every telecast. It was, it was, uh, I have to say, you know, it was, it was, and, and um, the people at CBS did some research and they found that the viewers' uh, reasons for watching the tournament were the top three were they, they wanted to watch golf, they wanted to watch a particular player. And they wanted to learn something that might help them the next time they went to play. Mm, yeah. Those were the top three things. And so we sat down and, and I explained to them that if they wanted to do any kind of talking about the golf swing, um, we had to find a camera where you could actually see the shaft and see the club head. Because yeah. prior to that, it was just a blur, right? Yeah. yeah. And I said, you can't learn anything from that. Yeah, yeah. And so they went out and they beat the bushes and they, they found a company that could modify a camera. And then I think... I think I'm right in saying that we were the first major sport to use a high-speed camera. Mm -hmm. No, we had in the fact, we had the old Hosher. Remember the Hosher camera we used to use for the stroke oh, yeah. sequences? Yeah, so. yeah, we used that for my book. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, but and I know for a fact that we are the first person, the first company to ever capture a shank in slow motion. We had Darren Clark. Mm. on the 17th hole at Whistling Straits right. in the first PGA Championship. And we had, it was a fixed camera back then. And we had him and we taped him and he hit a shank on 17. <laughs> yeah. He, he, and we showed it. He was prone to them occasionally, I remember. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I, I dragged you off the Saudi subject or we wandered off it between us. Um, what do you think is going to happen? Um, where Where's this headed? And and without naming names, we're all guessing at this point, or, or pretty educated guesses, I think, by this stage. But um, what sort of players do you think are, are going to jump? Is it is it going to be just to begin with at least the mid forties and up guys that are not really competitive on the PGA Tour or are about to become less competitive and too young yet for the Senior Tour? That kind of age group. I, I, I suspect that that would probably be the first iteration. Mm -hmm. Um. The Saudis apparently have made it clear that they're in this for the long haul. They're going to fund it and they're going to run it yeah. and it's going to evolve. And, and eventually it'll be someplace where, uh, quote unquote, top name players would want to compete. Right. Yeah. Um, look, I think there's room for a lot of interesting formats um, in golf that can make the television viewer um entertained better yeah right I, I think and i've said this before on another podcast with uh, with the no laying up guys there is nobody in the hierarchy of the pga tour or cbs or nbc or anybody else that that has that broadcast tour golf golf channel whoever they don't give a rat's ass about the viewer's experience mm. in watching golf they, they don't 
Because if they did, they'd find a way of getting together and eliminate the promotional things, eliminate some of the commercials. They'd figure out a way to make it a more appealing product. But they don't care. Hmm. They got a monopoly, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think some of I these... Think, uh, sorry, go, I, I was going to say, do you think some no, of these good things will happen because of the Saudi thing? I mean, the, I do. Yeah. I, I, think they, I think they're going to assess what's going on. I think the fall series as we know it might and should go away. Mm-hmm. I think it's abysmal. Um, no disrespect to the sponsors who run those tournaments, but virtually no one watches them. Yeah. Um, and there's there's a multitude of ways that you can spruce this up. I think that there ought to be. We used to have a mixed team event, one of those. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, if I were the Saudis and I were going to set up an event, and I had 48 male players, I'd have at least 24 female players. And 24 senior tour players. Yeah. So that's 96 players, which you can easily handle, right? Yeah. That's the field at Augusta. Yeah. And let people go out there and let people watch seniors, women, tour players mm-hmm. simultaneously. And then and then make a team of one of each and yeah. have a team competition. Yeah. You, you, there's a there's a multitude of things that you could do to make it more interesting, but they don't they don't want to uh, they don't want to change that they're stuck in their ways mm-hmm. yeah i i mean I, I share everyone's horror over the human rights um state of affairs in saudi but i mean i i was in saudi for that that tournament this year and the place i stayed in was the the campus of the king abdullah university of science and technology which might have been somewhere where you would have gone early in the in your life peter probably but uh, not me and I, I had a little wander around the campus and uh, into the supermarket. And the supermarket looked like a supermarket you'd get anywhere in America or over here. And there was a Burger King and, you know, the bathroom. When I went into the bathroom in my room, it had Cola written on it, the guy who owns Whistling Straits. So um, the golfers are far from alone in feeding at the, the Saudi trough. Um, I'm not sure where, you know, anyone's. We should, we should all stand on that, but it's the golfers are they're getting a lot of grief. Um, whereas the, the a lot of companies are 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 already in Saudi, if you like. But um, I, I don't know where it all ends. Uh, whether it's going to be good or bad. I mean, where where do you see this the end game, if you like, on all of this? I I, I have no idea. I, I do know, like I said, with selective outrage and selective hypocrisy, they hired Jack Nicklaus for millions and millions of dollars mm. to build their golf facility yeah right i've not heard one bad word about jack taking saudi money mm-hmm. not one yeah 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 i mean so the, people are, the, the, and, and i'm not saying that he he deserves to be criticized for it i i happen to think not mm-hmm. I, i'm a, i'm a, a capitalist at heart right um, yeah and i'm i'm not in the business of trying to fix political problems around the world no. i'm in the business of trying to fix golf swings and if they wanted to hire me for X amount of dollars to go over there and do a golf school, I probably would. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's not my job. It's it's not it's not my job to fix problems of certain governments around the world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, I mean, we we went to the Philippines, did a golf school with Ferdinand Marcos, was the dictator there. Yeah, <laughs> that was Golf Digest. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's any number of examples of, of you know where does it end if you start down that road? That's the thing. So. Anyway, I, I want to move you on. Um, the Masters, we've just watched uh, a couple of days ago now. Um, 
Scotty Scheffler winning. Um, you've got a very long association uh, through the television with the Masters. Uh, the obvious question to start with is, do you miss it? Uh, you haven't been there for a couple of years, I think. I did 30 straight years. Yeah. From 1990 to 1919. Um, uh, I chronicled Tiger's first victory. And uh, he took the lead in the tournament on the 15th hole, which was my hole in 2019 for his, at least at this point, his last Masters victory. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I've got to see a lot of things. Uh, in, in some respect, I, I miss it. Um, but it's become, everything's become so <sighs> homogenized, so s- sterilized. It's, it's, I, I don't know. It's it's um, it's a different deal than it was back. I don't see anybody having any fun hmm. in the telecast or 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 whatever. It's just uh, if I can't have fun, I'm not going to do it. Um, yeah. So yeah, I don't I don't know that I would go back. Well, how does that manifest itself? I mean, go into that a little bit deeper. What 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 does that actually mean, or how how would we be aware of that as viewers? Um, your ability to say, well, obviously Gary McCord proved that you can't be funny there. Yeah. yeah. Um, he got, he got banned. Um, but, but there are some things you can say that I think are insightful, perhaps even intelligent and funny Mm -hmm. without, without upsetting the powers to be at Augusta, but I don't see anybody doing anything other than seven hour and 185 yards. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought, the, I thought the, the, the visuals the production of the telecast this year was, uh, was actually quite good. I thought the commentary was lacking. Yeah. Um, I mean, if I hear Ian Baker Finch say whole location one more time, I am going to scream. I mean, he's a, the man is obsessed well, it, with whole location. It, it's okay. Um, the Masters has changed a lot over the years. I tweeted out, in 1986, Ken Green was, got a, a, a very stern letter from Hord Harden telling him in no uncertain terms he wouldn't be invited back if he ever had his son caddy for him in the par three again. Right, yeah. Uh, and, and he got another letter for stopping on 16 with Mark Kalkovecchia, both students of mine at the time, yep. and skipping the ball across the water onto the green. Yeah. Right, so they've 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 softened up a little bit there. Um, wh- what was once a letter of reprimand is now celebrated. They have a four-hour freaking TV show on the par three contest yeah. with babies running uh, around. And yes, unwatchable, whatever, right? Abs- absolutely unwatchable. They they have gone from no women members to having women members. They've gone from no people of color to having people of color. They've slowly b- brought themselves into, you know, the twenty-first century. Now they have to do it with their verbiage, hmm. right? They're spectators. They're fans. They're not patrons. Yeah. <laughs> they're bleachers out there. They're not uh, POS, uh, patron observatory stands. <laughs> yeah. So that's what they call them. That's what they ask I, me to I actually know. say. I know. On the air, right? Yeah. Whole locations. It's, it, it's the cup. It's the pin. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, or the what, flag is back left. What is intriguing back to me? Yeah, I mean, I, I've lived, I lived there for a week last week there in their little world, and it's it's always intriguing to me that that if you were to ask them, 
is that really a world that anybody would want to live in? I mean, why why do they create this world for you know? I mean, it's George Orwell created you know wrote about stuff like that in nineteen eighty four, but it, it's amazing to me that they think that that's what people want. It, it's 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 no fun, as you say that, that there's no fun being at Augusta because you're you're walking on eggshells the whole time. Right, that's what I feel like that's anyway. Not, that's I I did thirty years of broadcasting that way. You, yeah, you never knew if you were breaking a rule. Until they told you you broke the rule. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't know that was the rule. Well, you broke it. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's uh, it's a tournament that I never would have wanted to miss because of its significance, mm. right? And being there and covering it, yeah. I thought was an extraordinary privilege. A- apart from that, walking on eggshells all week long and and all that stuff wasn't fun at all mm. for me. Yeah, it, it really wasn't. Um, and and so. Yeah, I mean, I think they got a ways to go yet. I think some of the things they do. I've always said, Huggy, that Augusta is is both the best and the worst of golf. Yeah, simultaneously, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's the worst of golf in its in its constant retention of old traditions that are now outdated. Uh, it's the worst of golf in exorbitant budgets for maintenance of a golf course. Yeah, it's 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 got to look like a like a video game to the viewer and it's immaculate and all that stuff. And other, other clubs around the world want to pursue that. And and then the dues go up for the members because it costs, you know, thousands of dollars more to cut the grass one tenth of one inch shorter yeah. on the greens and make yeah. it go faster and all that, all that stuff. That said, some of the best of golf is there. Um, it's the only major, I mean, they, they now have allowed one walking reporter for CBS inside the ropes which they never did in my 30 years, right? Right. I always thought one of the one of the best things about that event was that all you saw were players and caddies mm, inside yeah. the ropes. Yeah. So it was pristine. Mm-hmm. Right? You go to the open, oh, go to the PGA, it's a zoo. whatever and you, and you got as many people inside the ropes as as outside the ropes. Yeah. I thought that was that that's really nasty to me yeah. and and really impacts the viewers uh, appreciation of what's going on. Yeah, but, I've I've always thought that it should only be important people like me that should be allowed inside the ropes. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, but um, so when you watch, when you sit and watch now, uh, as you did uh, last week, I mean, wh- what are you seeing that you like, and what are you seeing that you don't like specifically? In terms of the television coverage, um. I've always maintained, and I, there will be no names mentioned here, but I've always maintained that CBS had a pretty decent group of of their announcers who were veterans who who mm. were doing it week in and week out. Then you come to their arguably their most important tournament of the year, and you bring in people who only do that once or twice a year. Yeah, um, and I, and I felt I, I still feel that that's a a weakness in the telecast. I'd rather see fewer announcers mm-hmm. um, who are who are well versed in in the game, understand the players, et cetera, et cetera. Um, um, but you know, back in the day, this is a tradition. Back in the day, we didn't have the technology that an announcer on thirteen could have another hole and and like ten and and see what's going on there. Yeah. So we had to put an announcer at ten, an announcer at eleven, whatever. And and now we have that technology, so we don't need as many announcers. I think there's there's too many voices that are uh, trying to outdo each other and and trying to sound smart. And and as a consequence, 
um, the the verbiage becomes exhausting to me. Yeah. Right. What do you make of the golf course the way it is now? I mean, it was over seven and a half thousand yards last week. Um, we're getting into dangerous areas with you and I talking about this, but um, what, what do you, what do you think? Where they they're the ones I, I that can I don't, they, they can spend any amount of money to do whatever they want to their golf course. Um, yeah, I'm just and, and and I think I think we saw. Um, I, I don't know. I, I didn't bother. I didn't even really care what the daily yardage was. Mm. Um, I, I know that they're capable of going, let's just pick 7,500 as a, yeah. as, as the back tees, right? Uh, having, having the ability to put 7,500 out there doesn't mean you need to do it every day. Mm-hmm. You know, like the fourth hole, you can, you can play it at 180 yards. You can play it at 240 yards with a different hole location. Um, you know, you can, you can make the hole tougher from 180 than it was from 240. Yeah. Right, fifteen was boring as hell. Mm, yeah, it uh, was. early in the week they, yeah. they played the back tee. It was into the westerly wind. It was wet, and it was a layup hole. It was another par three yeah. in all intents and purposes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I learned that reachable par fives are way more exciting than three shot par fives. Mm-hmm. Now, should they all be reachable? No. Should they all be three shot? No. You need to have a blend, and and that's where I think. To me, the ideal golf course gives you the flexibility to change the examination every day, but have holes that are gettable, have holes that are extremely difficult, and have some holes that are simply challenging. Yeah. Um, and so that 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 let's that's more about the setup than it is about the golf course. Yeah. 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 I Still mean, to this day, the, the, look the twelfth hole, right? Shortest hole in the golf course. Yeah. It is, to me, I've always said this, it is the greatest test of discipline versus ego. Mm. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're old school and you think the golfer should be challenged mentally to figure out how to play a certain hole, whether yeah. it's to, to hit it down the left side of the fairway so you can see the, the back right pin or whatever yeah. the case may be. Yeah. The 12th hole is a masterpiece of discipline versus ego. Do you have the discipline to aim it over the bunkers each yeah. and every day? Yeah. And the discipline to stay committed to it during your swing and not change your mind halfway into the downswing? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Everybody said that Cam Smith made a bad – he just made a bad swing. No, he didn't just make a bad swing. Mm-hmm. The bad swing was the result of not being committed to what he was doing. And I don't know if he made the right decision or not because I wasn't there. Right. But I do know that whatever decision he made, he never followed through on it. Yeah. the, the bad, resulted the- in a miss it. Yeah, the bad swing came from whatever was going through his head as he was making Correct. that swing. Yeah. Correct. The discipline to pick the right target, the discipline to pick the right club, yeah. the discipline to stay 100% committed to it all the way through the swing. Mm-hmm. Or does your ego take over and and say, I'm, I'm going to go over the flag. I'm yeah. going to hit a great shot, whatever. And, and so you don't need 240-yard par threes to mentally challenge golfers mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. The, the, i've always we're going in a different direction right now but i've always maintained that the biggest the biggest flaw in this whole expansion of technology and the golf ball has been architects the architects have screwed it up big time because if you give a person a bigger golf course that's playing longer you know what they're going to do they're going to learn to hit it farther yeah so they're going to go to the gym they're going to do whatever it's and, and but if you give them a really tight 
challenging hole with 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 options that make them think and make them uh, not be a hundred percent committed, then you're a great architect. Yeah, yeah. The, but every one of them just had a knee jerk reaction. Yeah, Let's the, add forty yards. Yeah, the players always adapt to whatever you know is going to be most advantageous for them. You know, so I've maintained this since the beginning of my teaching. Now it's evolved somewhat in the last few years, but the evolution of the golf swing has been at the result of changes of equipment and changes of golf course design and conditions. By that, I mean, you know, back in the 1800s, they wore boots that they couldn't roll their ankles. So they had to lift their left heel up a lot. They wore tweed jackets and they couldn't get extensions. So they bent their elbows a lot. That's part of your equipment, your clothing, right? So as the clothing changed, the swing changed a little bit. We went from hickory to steel. We went from featheries to gutta purchase to, to, to Haskin ball and, and then to the Sterling ball, whatever. So the golf courses went from greens that were seven, eight on the stint meter to now 14, yeah. right? Do you think the putting stroke has changed? Do you think putters have changed? You go back to the old putters back in the 50s and 60s, they were really light, so you could get a little hand flick in there to get yeah. the ball, yeah. hit it hard enough to make it roll how far it had to, right? Yeah. Now now, you, now people are swinging sledgehammers because you don't want any flash speed with your putting stroke, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, all I'm, of the evolution of the golf swing has happened because of the changes of equipment, changes of golf course design and conditions, and finally, now, working out. Where, where do because you think, now players are more flexible and stronger and they can make different moves in their golf swing. Where, where do you think the RNA and the USG are headed with this? I mean, they, they seem to be edging ever closer to doing something, whatever that something may be. Uh, you know my feeling on this. We, we, we differ on this a little bit and, and more than a little bit sometimes. Um, I, I, I'm getting a bit frustrated with them in terms of let's, let's, if you're going to do something, let's get it done. I mean, I do. I sympathise with the the view that they're having to cross all their T's and dot all their I's before the lawyer inevitably has to stand up and say we've done everything, blah blah blah, before this goes to you know litigation. But where where do you think they're headed? Forget the the rights. Whether you you know, what do you think they're going to do, and when do you think they're going to do it? What does it look like that they're going to do to you? I, I don't. I I don't have the slightest idea because I don't know that there is anybody at the RNA or the USGA for that matter, who has a real uh, in-depth understanding of what I call quote unquote, the game of golf and and what it means to, to the punter and what it means to the player uh, who's playing for his livelihood, Mm -hmm. what it means for uh, consumers, what it means for manufacturers. I don't think there's anybody there that, that understands the ramifications of everything um, if they make one change, whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, if we agree that the golf ball is going too far, and I'm not sure that that's, you know, a point that we can agree on. No. Um, <laughs> well, I, I just worry, example, Peter, where, where are they going to play in 10 years' time? That's, that's what worries me. And I, I saw the guy, in, again, in Saudi Arabia, that big South African lad who's six foot ten. And routinely hits yeah. at four hundred yards. I mean, that that's he's just the start of that. And I do. Yep. I mean, where, where are they going to play? You know, that's the thing. 
Well, A, I know he can hit it far, but I'm not sure he can play well. Well, that he, but he, again, he's just the start of it, you know. There will right. be some no, and, yeah. and I understand that. Yeah. And why is he able to play? Why is he able to play? You mean, what do you Correct. mean? Why is he able to play? I, I'm not sure I understand the question. If he were forced to play with dynamic steel shafts. Oh, I see. Right, I see we are. Right. 150 grams like right. Jack Nicholas had that were only 43 inches long. He would have to do what George Archer did at six foot five and scrunch himself down to make him five foot 10 to be able to use the equipment. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and George butchered his body doing that. He had numerous surgeries because he couldn't stand athletically to the golf ball. So the, the lightweight shafts, the lightweight, stiff shafts, the longer shafts have allowed bigger, stronger players to come into the, to the game. And, and that's got nothing whatsoever to do with the golf ball. Nothing. And, and if you allowed the, the, the longer, lighter shafts and the bigger heads and, and roll the ball back, you're going to see seven foot guys coming in and still hitting it this far. So it's a, it's a much more complicated equation than just the ball's going too far. Yeah, I know it's going too far in some instances, but there's multiple reasons why. Yeah, I, you know? I, I know they're worried about the, you know, if we get flat cam weather this year at St. Andrews, which can happen, um, they're worried about people breaking 60. If they're not, they should be. And I mean, I'm, not, I'm not offended by low scores, but that might be the tipping point that where they think, well, we need to do something here if they're knocking it around in the high 50s on the old course. I mean, like it or not, that might be, the, that might be what happens. And I understand the reverence of the old course, and I share that reverence. What happened to old Presswick? Yeah, I mean, uh, the 1925. Did the, game, did, the game, did, the game, did the game evaporate because old Presswick was, at the time, it was, it was the golf course. Hmm. It, it, was, it was pulled out of the rota. Did the game evaporate because of that? No, but yeah, again, again, I keep going back to the question of wh where are they going to play? I mean, they're going to have to build these, you know, custom-made 9,000-yard courses? I mean, how's that going to work? I think, well, first of all, they should never do that, right? I mean, there's, there's multiple ways of, of slowing down distance. You can make the fairways, fairway grass longer. Hmm. Put, put it back to where it was in the 60s and 70s. You can... I personally, I'm a, I'm not a big fan of unplayable rough because I think the recovery shot gets taken out of play. Yeah. But I think the, the rough should be commensurate with the club that you're using. I, I would mow the rough from two inches at 250 yards. I'm just throwing out numbers yeah. now yeah. to, to four inches at, at, 200 yards to six inches at 150 yards to eight inches inside of 50 yards. Mm -hmm. right. So that it's a commensurate problem for the club that you have. I, I, the technology is there. I, I guarantee you it can be, it can yeah. be invented. Yeah. Right. But you, so you mentioned you, you mow the grass longer, the farther out you go from the tee and the closer you get to the green. Yeah. W would you agree with me that the, it would help if the ball went sideways more as a entertainment you know, forget how far it goes. Just that uh, you shot shaping. I mean, you you see guys hopefully play more like Seve or Lee Trevino did back in the day. 
I'm, I miss the, the shaping of shots. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's funny. I see all kinds of shaping of shots with the, with the, with the punters I team. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm bases. sure. Yeah. I'm not talking about they, them. They still, yeah. Everybody says the ball doesn't curve very much. I say, come up. Yeah. Tonight, let's, well, I'll I know. I get that. I'll show yeah. you the ball curve. Yeah. yeah. So, so when you off center hits, it still curves on center hits. It doesn't as much. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I'm talking about edu- um, educated curving here. Yeah. The, 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 the solution the only solution that I can see, golf ball wise, that's of any consequence, is to do what we did when we went from the one six two to the one six eight, right? Yeah, and and make the golf ball slightly larger. Yeah, yeah. that would make it curve more. That would make it go slightly shorter. That would be a little bit more punitive on on uh, miss hits. Now, how much larger? I don't know. I'm not a scientist in, in that regard, but um, you know, I, I saw I saw European players, worldwide players for that matter, you know, lose 15 or 20 yards yeah. immediately the day that they had to play the one six ball, yeah. one six eight ball. Yeah, right. So I, I don't know if it's making the ball fractionally larger and the cup the same amount larger mm-hmm. i don't i don't know yeah. um well, but that's I, the only reasonable solution yeah i mean the, the, when people you know say that a rollback i mean the scaremongers say that a rollback would cause people to give the game up because it was suddenly too difficult well the, the, we had one 40 years ago I, I went through it i lost 20 i was one of those people that lost 20 yards overnight when we went from the small ball to the big ball but it kind of went unnoticed in America for obvious reasons, you know. So the rest yeah, of the we didn't world, lose any yardage. No, the, the we rest just didn't get to gain the yardage when we went over there. Yeah, exactly. the The rest of the world suffered, but and I didn't see millions of people leaving the game because it was suddenly too difficult because of that, you know. No, I mean, having said that, the the abolition of the one six two ball was the birth of the competitiveness of the Ryder Cup players, in my opinion. Absolutely. Yeah, you're dead right. I mean, it was a better ball to play with. I'm not criticizing the move. I'm just saying that we, we did look, you know, uh, 20 yards was gone suddenly, you know. But yeah. this, people yeah, didn't but, rave. But your, you know. your players became better players because of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, but That was actually the, the last thing on my list, Peter. You, you segued beautifully into the Ryder Cup. Um I'm a wee bit worried about the future of that, t- to be honest. I mean, uh, other than Medina, which was well-named the Miracle, uh, we haven't had a close one for quite some time, and it's losing a wee bit of its luster in my eyes because um, it's great when it's close. It's not that great when it isn't, and uh, the home teams are setting courses up to supposedly advantage their own players, and it's maybe gone too far, um, and it's they're playing with fire a little bit with what is you know, one of the great events in golf. Um, would you agree with any of that? And w- where would you stand on it? Um, yeah, I mean, I, again, um, to me, golf and life for that matter, I don't want to get philosophical, but golf is about awareness and adjustment mm. in all aspects, right? Um, the Ryder Cup hasn't always been um, eight team matches and 12 singles. Mm. It's, it's, it's had various different yeah. forms over yeah. the years. And I think that they really need to look at that and, and see how they can get um, either make it four days and have everybody play every day, mm-hmm. but not, not as much or, or something like that. I think the way you make it more competitive is, is more matches over more days uh, with everybody having to play. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, um, the, yeah, the, that's 
we can, I mean, the, the, the other side of that coin, <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit is that it's always closer than you think. I mean, even the last one, I, I was making the point to somebody the other day that it was 11.5 for America on the Saturday night before the singles, which looks like a lot. But if you think about it, that that was the difference between Rory playing poorly and Rory playing well. Rory lost three games, but if he wins three, it's 8-8. Eight, eight. You know, it's, right. the, especially the, the top players are incredibly important in the Ryder Cup. If your top players do well and win most of their matches, the very worst thing that can happen is that you'll lose very narrowly and you'll probably win. You know, so I'm sure they're well aware of that. Yeah, no. Yeah, and and I think I think that look that Europe has produced um, a lot of really really good players in the last 30 40 years, no question about it. Um, but America still pretty much dominated up until the tour decided to invent the President's Cup. Mm. And listen, the tour is is royally pissed off that they don't have any financial interest yes. in any of the five biggest events in golf. <laughs> yes, that's true. The four majors and the Ryder Cup. Yeah. And and so what did they do? They decided to invent uh, the President's Cup. Now, that means that the top American players have to play one of those matches every single year. And, and the European players get a year off and a year of motivation hmm. and a year of enthusiasm building and team bonding and, and so on and so forth. And, and I'm sorry, but a, a two-year rested player who really wants to get out there and play is, is a really good challenge for a worn out American player who has to play in one of these things every single year. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah we, we had Nick Price on this, on this podcast a few months ago and he was, he'd been international captain in the president's cup and he'd fought hard to get the, the format changed to make it more competitive because, you know, it, it needed to be changed to make it that way because the, the Americans were overwhelming the, the internationals, but the, the PGA tour were, significantly reluctant to make any changes they like they like winning even if it is by a lot but it's it's not it, it's just not entertaining for me team matches are there's nothing better if they're close but if they're not close yeah not so much yeah and and in most cases the individual matches are close yeah yeah that's right yeah and, and so you have to you have to hope that that entertains the people enough um you know you there's been several years. I, my first television job was the 89 Ryder Cup at the Belfry. Mm-hmm. For USA, right. remember. And for USA Network, yeah. yeah. And I, I got to walk the fairways. I, I walked with Azinger and Faldo. I walked with Seve. Mm-hmm. You know? I, me- I remember my call of Seve's two iron on 18. He hit it so fat. Yeah. <laughs> and, and somebody, uh, McCord in the tower said, What's it look like, Peter? And I said, I don't know whether to tell it to get up or get down because <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't. It was hit so poorly; it landed yeah. right in the middle of the pond. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, and a lot of those matches, it, it ended up in a fourteen fourteen tie. Mm. Yeah, that's and right. it was still one of the most exciting, right? Yeah, yeah. And the next year, or the next, not the next year, but the next event, ninety one at Kiowa, it was. It came down to a six foot putt by Bernhardt on the last hole. Yeah. Um, Obviously, that was exciting. So we need to keep the individual matches going so they're close, so that people are sitting on the edge of their seat on the 18th hole. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. 
What what were the best moments that you saw in Ryder Cups? Because there's nothing like match play, is there, for getting in their heads? No, I mean it's it's um, and it's it, look. You can talk all you want to about Europeans are more used to playing match play or whatever they used to be, but they're not anymore. Yeah, they, they, they don't they don't play as much of it in their youth. They they get out of the European. Um, atmosphere and come to America to to play on the PGA Tour or whatever. Mm. And so I, I don't think match play per se is an advantage for the Europeans over the Americans. Um, and in fact, I think having moved over here and not being afraid of the American players has made the Europeans that much stronger. Mm. Yeah. Um, whereas it used to be they'd come over and the only time they ever saw Jack Nicklaus was playing in the Ryder Cup and they were scared out of their wits. Yeah. Because exactly. they, they never competed against him, right? Um. But my, my best moments, uh, I, I still like the 89 Ryder Cup. Um, uh, the, the Faldo uh, Azinger match. I'm mean, sorry, the Seve Azinger match. Yeah, there was a bit of needle there, Belfry. wasn't there? Oh, boy, I tell you what, that was, <laughs> I, I got stories from that. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was match play at its best. It wasn't, it was cutthroat. Yeah. yeah. On both sides, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and then the uh, the golf ball fiasco at Kiowa yep. with Olafabel and uh, and Seve. Mm-hmm. I mean that that's when men were men, and you know you you did what you had to do to try and win, yeah. get under their skin. Yeah, yeah. If, even if you even if you were wrong with what you were doing, you still did it because it might help you on the next hole. Yeah, a little bit of that edge has been lost because the the. Because as you just said, the, the the players are more familiar with each other, and inevitably, in some cases, good friends. I mean, yep. th- that doesn't lend itself to edge, if you like. Well, I mean, back in the day, I, I always felt like um, the European side had a chip on their shoulder that they could possibly win. Then that elevated the entire. Uh, perception of the European tour worldwide. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Rightly or wrongly. Right. And then, and now let's face it, there are so many Europeans playing on the American PGA tour that the European tour is probably a, a notch below. Oh in, God. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a feeder tour before long. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and so, and so the, the, the desire to, to win for the sake of our perception from the European point of view I think is going to be more and more diminished as we move forward. Yeah. Which is a shame in a way, you know, I understand it, but it's, you know, I did, I did enjoy the edge as you just said with, I mean, there's nothing better, you know, it was fun, but you know, times change. And I think the matches have to change with them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, we all do that. I would, I would be in fan, a fan of different format, but, but that's me. Yeah. Anyway, Peter, I'm, I'm conscious that I've kept you talking here for almost an hour and a half and, uh, I appreciate your time. It's always been, I've always enjoyed our chats uh, over a long period, even the ones where we haven't agreed. Um, In fact, (laughs) probably especially the ones where we haven't agreed, they were the most enjoyable. But uh, thank you again for your time. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to see your face. You're you're more than welcome. Hear your voice. More than welcome in any time. It's a pleasure to do it. Good to see you, Huggy. Thanks very much. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. 
Well, wasn't that just like being a fly on the wall listening to a couple of veterans of the industry break down the game? Some serious history between those two and too many nuggets of wisdom to digest in one sitting in that interview, I reckon, one that I'll be going back to listen to again, and I suspect a few of you might do the same. For the moment, though, that's it for episode 65, and while I can't yet reveal who our next guest will be, I can promise it'll be one that you will enjoy. So make sure to hit the follow button if you haven't already, and don't miss episode 66 or indeed any future episode of The Thing About Golf. Golf.